testing. Check, check. One, two. There we go. I want to speak to you this morning about the church, which is life together. From Acts chapter 2, if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse Forty-one. So those who received his word were baptized. Peter has been preaching. And there are a number of people who are listening to him preaching, and they are receiving his message in their hearts. This is before just making a decision. They're actually cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit is moving here. They receive his word, that is, they receive the word of God through Peter, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a big revival. That's a lot of people. And they were genuinely changed from from the inside out. This this was not just uh, we raise our hand or we walk an aisle and then it really doesn't mean anything. Statistics show that there are many so-called revivals, there's many different campaigns that have been um, put together throughout the years where people will walk an aisle and and so on and so forth, and then there's no real change. That doesn't mean there's nobody who changes. There are many who have come to Christ through a raised hand, through walking an aisle. As we've said earlier today, we pray that these Uh, This front part of the church is filled with people coming to Christ. But the point is that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody has really understood. But in this case, here in Acts chapter 2, they understand. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There are really only two different kinds of lives in this world. When we talk about life, uh, we think oftentimes that there is many different options out there. Christianity is simply one of them. But no life, regardless of religion, regardless of creed, regardless of belief, can be defined apart from Christianity. There's Christianity, and then there's everything else. There's non-Christianity. That's the only two options. This whole idea of we kind of pick from this smorgasbord that man is independent, and he says, I think I'll be an atheist. That could be true. I think I'll be an agnostic. That might be true. Maybe I'll be a Muslim, a Hindu, and then he comes down along to Christianity and says, wow, there's so many things to pick from. I think I'll pick the Christian option. 
No, there's only two kinds of lives that are lived in this whole world. Every kind of life that is lived in the world, regardless of if a, a person is a, a believer in God or not, every kind of life that is lived apart from Christ is a rebellious imitation. It's a dark replacement of Christianity. God came first. God established relationships. So any person who tries to have a relationship with other people apart from God is substituting the kind of relationship that God has designed with a substitute, with an imitation. We could, um, we could say it's Splenda life, this, uh, this imitation. It's not real sugar. We could say it's Splenda, or we could say that it's equal. Whatever we call it, it's an imitation of the real thing. God comes, he makes relationships. God is the one who has ordained worship. And so when we try to define worship apart from God, we end up coming up with some kind of substitute. So men and women worship apart from God. And they fall into all types of... Um, Various kind of, kinds of worship. People still get into relationships. Why do they get into relationships with other people? Because God ordained relationships. Why do people who are not Christians still worship? Because they were made by God. They were made by the true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no way to define worship. There's no way to define relationships. There's no way to define work. There's no way to define anything in this life apart from Christianity. Why? Because God was in the beginning. He made all these things first. He was first. And so we come along in our sin and we pervert all these different things. We're using his good gifts. We're using his money that he has given us. And in our sin, we use it on lust and greed. He's the one who created sex. We didn't design sex, but we take sex and we pervert it. We misuse it. We abuse it. He's the one who designed worship, and we take worship, and instead of creating something in and of ourselves, we can't do that. We simply substitute true worship with false worship. So there's really only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are Christians we're living a Christian life. And then there's everything else that is simply a substitute. And every person who is not a Christian, because they are all rebelling against the true God, is living according to a worldly pattern. It's all the same. You can take agnostics, you can take atheists, you can take Hindus, you can take Muslims, you can lump them all together. They are all substituting the worship, and the true life of the Christian God following this worldly pattern. And life in the world is, is empty. Life in the world apart from Christ uh, is desperate. It is dark. Oh, there are many people who stay in it for a long time. We hear people say, well, once they hit rock bottom, then they'll, then they'll turn. 
Once they finally come to the end of their rope, then they'll finally understand what's going on. Then they'll finally begin to look up and cry out to God. Not necessarily. It'll take you to many people and you have experienced the same thing. Many people go to their dying breath defying God. With this Splenda worship, a Splenda life, an equal life, a substitute for the real thing. They go, they go all the way till they're dead. Oh, we pray that God would use things in, in our lives and in others' lives that would finally bring people to the breaking point where they say, God, I need you. We think of many different examples in the scripture where God brings a person to the breaking point. And they finally say, Lord, I don't want this life anymore. It's a whole life. Lord, I don't want this life. I want your life for me. Lord, I, I realize that I've been substituting not just certain things, but Lord, I've been living my whole life in a certain way that has substituted true worship, a true life for a false one. Following this worldly pattern. Romans chapter 12, if you flip over there real quick, Romans chapter Romans chapter. 12, verse 2. Some translations say pattern in here, mold, we could say. But it says here in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the world. Or we could say, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. This mold of worldly living. This life apart from God. This life of using all of his good gifts. We take all of his good things and we say, we say we're, we're going to use them on ourselves and we're not even going to recognize the one who gave them to us. If you remember in um, Hosea, you remember Gomer, who uh, was married to Hosea? And here she is. She turns, as we saw in that book, she turns into this prostitute. And yet she's using all of the good gifts that she has been given. And Hosea says, and she doesn't even recognize where they come from. There's, there's no gratitude. There's no thankfulness. She's using all these things in her life. But she's not understanding where they even come from. Listen, that is, that is us without God. That is a perfect picture of us without God. Using all of the good things that he has given us. All of his wonderful gifts and saying we're going to use them in the way that we want to use them. We're going to still have them because we can't get away from God. He's the one, he's first. He's the one who created all these things. So we can't manufacture our own kind of life. After all, we come from him. But we're going to use them the way that we want to use them. And then on top of it, we're not going to thank him, the one who gave us all these wonderful gifts. Isn't that exactly what it says in Romans chapter 1? That they exchange they exchange the worship of God. Instead of worshiping God, they worship the, create, the, the creature instead of the creator. There's no thanksgiving. There's no desire to give God thanks for the things that he has given to us. 
So in Romans chapter 12, verse 2 here, it's talking about this pattern of this world, this, this whole lifestyle that is lived apart from Christ. And it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First John chapter 2 talks about this worldly lifestyle, this worldly pattern of living. Where he says in 1 John, very familiar passage, where he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not agape, that is, do not, do not love, do not love the world or the things in the world. Is he saying don't love grass, don't love food? No, he's talking about this worldly, this sinful system, or even replacing good things and setting them up as idols in, in place of God. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So there's this worldly life. And if you have uh, any fear of God, you, you begin to see this life and you begin to go, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to get involved in that kind of lifestyle. Why? Because there's two different kinds of lifestyles. There's the lifestyle of the world, which is a substitute lifestyle, a misuse of the good things that God has given us. And then there's Christianity. Christianity is life delivered from the world and rightly aligned. The reason we say this is because we want, we want to make sure we understand this. Christianity is a life. It's, a, it's an exchange. We could say it's the exchange life. So we exchange this worldly life that we've been talking about, all of these other kind of lives that are lived in the world, regardless of how they are lived out. And the... Holy Spirit comes and he gives us the power and through his power, there's an exchange of life. So we say, no longer do we want to live in the world and be of the world. But we are actually coming out and we are saying, I don't want that life, that whole package, the whole thing all together. We're saying we reject that kind of life. And now, Lord Jesus, we're coming to you and we are coming to you and asking you for a brand new life, a whole new life. This is why any notion uh, that says Christianity is simply uh, a decision that says uh, we come into church and uh, we continue to simply uh, live the same kind of life that we've always lived, but now we simply tack on church. We get religion. 
That is, that is no Christianity at all. This, this, is a, this is a deep concern here, I think, in, in the church in America. In the church in America, what we are being taught at this point in many, many churches is that you live in the world, you think like the world, you act like the world, and to become a Christian, all you simply do is make some kind of decision that recognizes Jesus, that just says something like, Jesus, you know, rose from the dead, he died on a cross. But there's no exchange of life. In other words, all we're doing is like Christmas ornaments. We have this in our life, and we put that ornament up, and we have this in our life, and we tack that ornament up to the tree. We have all these different ornaments on the tree, and we find Christianity. We say, oh, that's nice. Yeah, going to church is nice. And so we tack that one up onto the tree as well. And what Christianity is is not that at all. Jesus said, if you want to follow, follow after him, that you must lay down your life and pick up your cross and follow him. It's an exchange of life. It's coming to the place where we say, I don't want this whole life anymore, this whole thing, the way I think about life, the, 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 the thoughts that have been dominating how I, how I make decisions in life, the loves, the lusts that a person has. They say, no longer do I, do I want that life, but I'm moving from that life and I'm exchanging it and I'm giving it over to God for a brand new life. Completely new life. By the way, this would be what we call the, the teaching of lordship. That Jesus Christ is Lord. This is why when Jesus would talk to people about um, people who were considering whether they should follow him or not, he wouldn't say just make a split emotional decision. But he would say things like count the cost. And he would teach, he would say, listen, if you're going to follow after me, you've got to give up everything. You've got to give it all up. You've actually come to an end of where you realize you've been living splendid life. You're saying, I haven't been life, living a life of real sugar. And I want to exchange all of Splenda, the packets of Splenda. Lord, I want to exchange it for the real thing. Lord, I come to an end of myself and I actually ask you to rule and to reign over my whole, my whole life. By the way, this is what happens in revival. When people are getting things right with God, they come before the Lord and they say, Lord, you take everything. Now we've heard, we've heard notions of that means God is going to call every person to the other side of the world or something like that. That's not what we're talking about here. Or God's going to call you instantly to leave your job or anything like that. He might. But chances are he probably won't. But there is this willingness. And perhaps we've got away from preaching what it is, what it really means to be in the Christian faith. That it's not just hanging another Christmas ornament on our life. 
But it's actually sitting down and thinking about our life and going, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to think this way anymore. I've been running my own life. I've been exchanging all sorts of things that have been given to me. I've been misusing, misappropriating, abusing the different things in my life that I recognize have been given as a gift to me from God. I want to ask you just a a quick question here this, this morning as we move along. Do you love the world? Do you love the world? Have have you gotten to a place in your life where you say, oh, this whole Christian thing is actually about me giving up my life? Me actually surrendering the whole of my life to the Lord. That doesn't mean everything's automatically going, going to go perfect the next day, but it does mean that there's a surrender of everything to the Lord where we say, Lord Jesus, I I step out of this life, this substituted, this, this phony life, God, I give it all up to you. That's what a Christian does. In the days of the Welsh Revival, and I would say even more recently in the days of the Jesus Movement, this is exactly what was happening to young people. They were coming to an end of themselves, and they were saying, I count it all rubbish. Everything in my life up to this point, Lord, I, I, I leave it behind. And I leave that life behind, and I now surrender my whole life to you. I exchange it, this idea of the exchange life. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 10, if you flip over to John chapter 10 real quick, John chapter 10, verse 10, John chapter 10, verse Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. Now, oftentimes we just think of, oh, he's just talking simply about heaven in the future. You know, we just continue to live our life now, and Jesus is saying someday you're going to get heaven. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying your whole life. I've come that you might have life. You're not living in true life right now. Yes, it's everlasting life, but it's life that begins now. It's a new life. It's a new way of living. It's a totally new way of thinking. It's a new way of worshiping. Priorities become different. Everything changes. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And we know that this life is only possible, this kind of life is only possible through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that his words are life. Jesus tells us that it is only the Spirit that gives life. It's the Holy Spirit who moves on our heart and brings us to a place where we say, Lord, I need a new life altogether. And unless you've ever come to that place in your life where you say, the whole life needs to change. Lord, I surrender the whole thing to you. Lord, I give it all up to you, the whole package of my life. I give over to you. I surrender. Then you're not a Christian yet. You must come to that place in your life where you surrender everything. And that can only be wrought by the Holy Spirit. 
This is why Peter in the text that we're looking at here this morning in Acts chapter 2, he says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about some kind of second work or second blessing. He's talking about the Holy Spirit himself. He's saying, you shall receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's the one who's going to motivate you to think like this. Who would give up their life to a man they can't see? Who would give up their whole life to uh, somebody 2,000 years ago laid his life down on a cross? How is that even possible? And be excited about it. Well, the only way somebody would ever be excited about anything like that is if the Holy Spirit's in it and he's the one motivating this whole thing to bring people to Christ. Now you say, why are we belaboring this, this whole point of this exchange life? We're talking about this this worldly life, this life that is lived apart, this substitute life, this life lived in rebellion, this life of imitation, this life of replacement. Why are we talking about that when we're looking here at Acts chapter 2? The reason we're talking about that is because we see exactly what happens in the lives of believers when they come to Christ. Look with me again at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Notice what happens. So those who received his word were baptized. So they received the word. This is the first thing that happens as we come to Christ. We come to him alone by faith. We repent of our sins. We trust in Jesus. I mean, there's a real thing going on here. And by the way, real faith in Christ doesn't look like this. Lord, I just, you know, I've heard these concepts and these precepts that have been taught. And uh, I finally come to the place where I just, I, I think I believe them. No, no, no. It's, it's a heart thing. Romans says a man, a person, a woman, a child must believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. It's not just, just stuff up here. So a, a person comes with their heart and they say, oh, Lord Jesus, I, I recognize that I've been doing life my own way. Lord, and in the rebellion of my life, I, I've been following my own dictates and my own commands. Lord, I've substituted. I haven't recognized all the good things you've been given me. And I have substituted all the things that you've given me for false things, imitation things, false worship, and so on. Lord, I come to you and I ask you to take my life. Take it, Lord. Lord, I, I repent of the rebellion in my life. I repent of the sin in my life. And God, I come before you and I ask you to take it. Will you forgive me of my sin? And this is exactly what is uh, going on here in Acts chapter 2. It's people really coming to a realization of the fact that they have been living a life on their own and that they need to surrender their life. They really get that. How do they really get that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is teaching them. The Holy Spirit is bringing deep conviction. The Holy Spirit is moving their hearts toward Christ. And so the beginning of all of this is repentance and faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance from sin, faith in Christ. At that moment, a person is genuinely converted. But there's an understanding there that they're giving up their whole life to Christ. And you say, well, how do you know that they're really giving up their whole life? Because of exactly what they begin to do. Notice what it says here that they do in verse 42. There's this devoted life. Their life changes. Everything changes in their life. And they devoted themselves 
they devoted themselves. By the way, that, that word in, in the Greek, uh, to devote themselves, this is this uh, continual devoting. It's, uh, it's steadfast participation. It's continuing partnership. In other words, it's not people who get saved and then they continue in this for a week or two and then give up. But the way that it's put here is this, this is a break. Their, their whole life has changed. By the way, you can tell when somebody's life has changed by the things that they devote themselves to. So before they were devoting themselves to all sorts of other things, now their, their whole life has changed. And it's not temporary. It's not just Christianity for a week or Christianity for a month or Christianity even for a year. It's this thing that's going to go on for the rest of life. I don't know if there's um, much more of a beautiful thing than, than aging Christians. Christians who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. You know, if you find somebody is genuinely converted at 18 or 20 years old, and I mean really converted, they get this message. They understand that there's an exchange of life going on. They've been convicted. They can sit down and talk to you about being convicted of their sin, repenting in Christ, trusting him alone for salvation, then their whole life changing. You can watch that person, and guess what? They're still a Christian at 25. They're still a Christian at 30, at 40, at 50, at 60. Why? Because there's been a, an exchange of a whole life. It's, I've been living in the world, and I'm not just making a decision and hanging in the ornament. But I'm giving up my life for the rest of my life to Jesus Christ. And how exciting is that? To know how real that is. To know that the Holy Spirit can transform someone and change them in such a way that they're so changed, that their life is so dramatically changed, that they devote themselves to these things for a lifetime. And who is it that would teach somebody? You know, we, we can sit in church and we have, and we can say, you know, it's important to, to devote yourself to these things that we're talking about here. It's important, as it's saying here in the text, to be steadfast, to continue to do these things. But it's only the Holy Spirit that can give the conviction and that can give somebody the drive and the motivation to say, that's exactly what I want. I hunger for these things to be taught by the Spirit of God Himself. If you go over to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4 says this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 says this, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. How do we know that God lives in us? We love each other. We love other believers. We love believers. The person <clears throat> says, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I just can't stand Christians. That's not what 1 John says. 1 John says, if you're a believer, you love other believers. And then he says this, by this we know that we abide in him. How do we know that our life has been changed? How do we know that we really know God and that he is in us? Here's the answer, because he has given us of his, of his spirit. You ever wonder where you're going to be in 20 years, 30 years, if you're still alive? I can tell you if you're a Christian, you're going to be loving Jesus. 
Why? Because everything's changed. The Holy Spirit lives in you. There's a devotion that has taken place in your heart because of the Holy Spirit. He teaches you these things. Oh yeah, they come from they come from outside teaching like we're doing this morning. But why are they received? They're received because the Spirit of God is working in our hearts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So not only were they devoted, but they were devoted to basic things. Isn't it amazing how we try to make everything so convoluted in the church? We, we say we need this program. We say we need that organization. We've got to figure out how to get people motivated and get people excited. And we've got to figure out how to do all these things. And yet the scripture teaches us that we simply come back to the basics over and over again. This, this is what Christianity looks like. This is the exchange life. This is what life as a Christian looks like. Here's what it looks like. Being devoted to this. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Here's what a, here's what a Christian is. This is, what a, this is what it looks like to, to live a Christian life. Uh, this, is, this is our manual. This is our, our Bible, the good book. And as we are Christians, as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, we, we want the basics. Here's what we hunger for. You can even talk to a, a baby Christian. Here's what they want. They want the Bible. And it's the Holy Spirit, as we grow in the Lord, he continues to, to manufacture and to change our hearts so that we get more and more hungry for this. What were they devoting themselves to in the early church? They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were saying this, feed us the word. Now, I'm sure the apostles, they said things like, and they had to come and they had to teach and they had to correct and they had to encourage and they had to rebuke and all these different things. But there was a hunger there from the beginning with these people. They, they wanted the apostles' teaching. They, they longed for it. And the fellowship. That is, um, there was real community. They had genuine friendships. They knew each other. They wanted to do life together. They liked talking with one another. They, they liked hanging out with one another. They did things together. They were friends. The, the idea of, of go, coming into a church on Sunday morning, sitting down, leaving, no real community, no real friendships, no deepened friendships, no deep relationships with other Christians, that's foreign to the, to the Bible. There, there's no such thing. This is, this is why in our church we, we stress home group so often and so deeply. Why, why have relationships formed in this church? Why are people here for many, many years? It's because of this devotion. Listen, this devotion to community. This word fellowship can be translated as communion or community. In fact, if you look down at verses 46 and 47, and day by day... They were attending the temple together. Notice what they're doing. They're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This is no, this is no socialistic or communistic regime. They have their own homes. They have their own food. 
but they're together. What do they like to do? They say, let's, let's have a meal together. Let's study God's word together. Let's hear it together. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. What is, what is church? What is this exchange life? And, and by the way, I think that's why a lot of young people are leaving church, and I would too. I, I would leave church if all church was you come in on Sunday morning and leave. That's not church. That's a substitute. That's Splenda. That's not the real thing. That's not friendship. That's not, listen, that's not community. That's not coming together and knowing each other, doing life together, going through the ups and the downs of life. And listen, in any church, there's problems, there's infighting, there's all sorts of things that go wrong. It's a family. And the only way you're going to stick together is if you really know each other and you really love each other and you're really doing community with one another. I'll never forget the first church I served, one of the saddest things I've ever heard. Lady in her church, she's now with the Lord, much older lady. She was in her late 80s, knocking on 90. A couple had left the church. They had been there for 30-some years. And I remember what her comment was. Her comment was to me, she said, they were such nice people. That's all she knew about them. For 30-some years, she knew them, she greeted them, she talked to them in a church service, but that was it. It was, it was simply come and go. There was, there was no real relationship. Now, let me ask you this. Kids are coming in, and they're looking at this, and they're saying, that's all this is, is we just live our regular, normal life the way we want to anyway, and then we come into church on Sunday morning for an hour and a half, and then we leave? Why do I need that? that that's not what was going on in the early church. Here's what was happening. People were attracted to the whole life change. There was an exchange of life. People looked at each other and they said, my goodness, those Christians, they really love each other. Oh, yeah, they listen to sermons. They listen to the apostles' teaching. They love that. But one of the big four here is they love fellowship. They love friendship. My goodness, how they love each other. Look at how they eat in each other's homes. Look how they talk with one another. Look how they help the poor. Look how they look out for each other in, in, the, in that church. And all of a sudden, a church like that, it becomes very exciting. i got to bring this to a close. I, I can just tell you this, though. When I, was, when I was young, and I've told you this story before, but I want to reemphasize it here. And please give me a few more minutes than, than normal. My parents got saved in the Jesus movement, and man, they were excited. They still are to this day about Jesus. They loved Jesus. They loved him then. They're the real deal. I lived with them. They loved him then. They loved him in the 70s, and they love him in 2018. And I remember in the church where we grew up, it was a community of people that really like did life together. It was a family. And I remember being carted from home group to home group, even as a little kid. And I remember the sounds in the other room as parents were praising God and singing and encouraging each other. I can remember talks after church that adults would have with each other. They would talk about Jesus. And they would talk about the things that they were learning. And there were real friendships, not only going on on Sunday, but on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. It was community. 
It was life together. It was the exchange life. It was, we give this life up, the worldly life. Listen, that's why so many people are attracted to the worldly life. They say, I got friends. I can hang out with people. It's fun. Of course it's fun. And then that church, it's that hour and a half on Sunday when no one even really cares about each other. Who would want that? Who would want that? I wouldn't. And I don't think you should want that either. Real friendship. I want you to listen to what C.S. Lewis, he was a, he was a skeptic and he was um, many ways miserable until he met Jesus. And one of the things that happened when he met Jesus was his, um, his eyes were open to this idea of friendship and of community. In uh, The Question of God, there's this book that I've been reading, The Question of God, and it compares the life, the miserable life of Sigmund Freud to the life of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Nikolai is writing this book, and he's talking about the, the, the life of Sigmund Freud. Is many people he knows and acquaintances, but he's, he's miserable. He's miserable throughout his whole life. Then he compares that life to C.S. Lewis. And he says this about C.S. Lewis. He says this, Nothing brought Lewis more enjoyment than sitting around a fire with a group of close friends engaged in good discussion or taking long walks with them through the English countryside. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said this, My happiest hours, Lewis wrote, are spent with three or four old friends in old clothes tramping together. He says this, sitting up till the small hours in someone's college rooms, talking nonsense, poetry, theology, metaphysics. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's like, I have friends. I love hanging out with my friends. And I love staying up till the wee hours of the morning just talking about anything. We talk about God. We talk about nonsense. We talk about everything. But I've got friends. There's a Community. Then he says this. There's no sound I like better than laughter. You like the sound of laughter? I heard Alistair Begg once say, he said, you better be careful of a, a man who can't laugh and a man who can't cry. Lewis writes, Friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friend. That's community. That's the church. That's what the Bible teaches. Have we, um, have we sacrificed the church for Splenda? I'm going to close with this. There's this the sense of excitement, they're getting back to the basics. Here's what they're doing. They're, they're involved in the apostles' teaching. They are 
devoted for a life to friendship, to the breaking of bread into prayers. They love to pray together. Oh God, we come to you to pray. But there was a sense of excitement. They're receiving the word of God. They're receiving food in each other's homes. It says here with, uh, with great joy and, and gladness. John Fawcett, I'm going to close with this. John Fawcett was born on January 6th, 1740, to a very poor family in Yorkshire, England. He was orphaned by the time he was 12 years old. By the way, this was written by a lady who tells a story named Lisa Ubi. Interesting last name. So he's orphaned by 12. He took a lengthy apprenticeship with a tailor, working 14 hours a day to survive. At the age of 16, he heard George Whitfield preach, and John became a Christian. That's what we were talking about earlier, that preaching of the word, the cutting of the heart, reception. So John Fawcett, 16 years old, receives Christ. While he was still an apprentice, John became active in the Baptist church. And he was asked quite often to speak. When John was 25 and had just wed his wife Mary, he was asked to serve as the pastor of a small church at Waynesgate. The people of the village were all farmers and shepherds, very poor, most of whom were unable to write or read. They were not able to pay much. And most of what John received as wages came in the form of wool, potatoes, or other produce. When John and Mary began to have children, they found it difficult to make ends meet. So here he is, he's pastoring this little church, not a lot of money, not a lot of people, in a little town. After serving at Waynesgate for seven years, John received the call from Carter's Lane Baptist Church, a very prestigious parish that would have been able to provide him a much larger salary. John decided to accept the position. So here they are in this little church. He's now He has this uh, reputation. He's become a good theologian. He's a good preacher. He's a good pastor. And now this prestigious church offers a call to him and his family to come. The Fawcett family packed their household belongings and prepared to move. The day came and the congregation was in tears as John and Mary prepared to leave. Mary is quoted as saying, I can't stand it, John. I know not how to go. John responded, Lord, help me, Mary. Nor can I stand it. We will unload the wagon. And John is recorded to have said to the crowd gathered around them, we have changed our minds. We are going to stay. John and Mary unpacked the wagon and let the church in London know that they would not be accepting the position. Fawcett then wrote this hymn to express his thoughts of those of his wife to the poor people they had chosen to live with and serve with. 
And the following Sunday, after their decision to remain at Waynesgate, John Fawcett preached from Luke chapter 12, verse 15. A man's life consists not in the abundance of things he possesses. He closed his sermon by reading this new song, a song we still know today. Blessed be the tie that binds. And here's what it says. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour out our ardent prayers, our tears, our hopes, our aims, our one, our comforts, and our cares. We share each other's woes, each other's burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. John and Mary continued their ministry at Waynesgate for more than 54 years. This is community. Fellowship. There's nothing more precious than the church, and there's nothing more precious than the exchange life, a life in the world that is given up for a life in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you for your word this morning. We ask, oh God, that you would speak clearly to our hearts. God, help us in our minds to get back to Acts chapter 2. Lord, we pray that we would, in, in our hearts and in our desires, uh, be asking ourselves, is, is this our heart? Lord, are we, are we thinking of church as a Christmas ornament, or are we thinking of it as a, as a totally new thing, a new reality? Help us, we pray. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said,